Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. James chapter 4, the first six verses. Would you join me? Let's pray. And we'll dig into this wonderful passage that helps us understand really what it is that we're faced with as we live our lives as believers on this earth. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. The Lord Jesus, your half-brother, authored this by the power of the Holy Spirit and speaks truth to us tonight, and we pray that you'd instruct us from heaven. Lord, sometimes we think sin happens because of our circumstance, or sin happens because of our upbringing, or our country, or our neighborhood, or somebody pushed our buttons too hard, but the truth, the fact is, sin's source is internal. It's a pressure within us, We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And each one of us, there's not one of us tonight that's righteous in and of ourselves. It is only your righteousness, Lord Jesus, that makes us right before God the Father. And so we pray that you'd instruct us from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, very simple but very pointed question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? In other words, what is their source? Why is there anger? Why literally is there warring? Why is there open combat? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Another question, but purposed as a statement. The answer is, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. Just advising you, verse 4 is not how you should address anyone in the body of Christ. And yet this is written to Christians. Adulterers and adulteresses. James speaking to the church and says, O unfaithful ones, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Open Declaration of war with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. But, and please circle that, Because after verses 1 through 5, you're kind of going, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. But he 
The Lord God who is gracious gives more grace, abundant grace, greater grace, all-sufficient grace, gives more grace. And therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, it's pretty obvious that James did not go to the Robert Schuller Institute for Church Growth. Because had you ever gone to that, which is now defunct, but you would go there and you would learn how not to offend anyone in preaching the word of God. In other words, I would never say to you, adulterers or adulteresses. I would never challenge you about whether your life is on par with what God wants. I I would never say to you, "Mm, you know, that's actually sin. I wouldn't actually speak anything that might disturb you in any way, shape, or form because you might leave the church over it. James would have flunked out of the Robert Schuller Institute for Church Growth. Some pastors avoid sin altogether. This is one of those passages that if you understand it, you will be immeasurably helped in understanding where sin comes from in the first place. What is its source? And it's not immediately obvious in the words that are in this text. And so let me just tell you, I'm not trying to attract seekers. Too often the church is almost like a business trying to attract customers. Oh, I mean congregants. The pastor's job is to not make believers comfortable. It's to say what's necessary so that our lives are like Christ. And so when someone comes to church, hopefully they'll hear the truth This passage is filled with truth, and to some degree it's uncomfortable truth. But it is truth nonetheless, and it's truth that will help you with your walk with the Lord. We almost have an idyllic picture of the early church. It's kind of like this whole group. We almost picture them like a bunch of hippies that kind of all got together, and it's like they're going to have a a love fest, and they all get together, and everybody puts on their tie-dyes and their bell-bottoms, and there's flowers in their hair, and wear bandanas, and yes, that's exactly how it used to look. I know it's hard to imagine, but it's true. But during that time, the early church is almost seen like, well, they lived a communal living, and they all got together, and everybody was nice. No, there's a question here. Where do wars and fights come from among you And he's talking to the church. You mean there's fighting and wars in the church? Mm Mm-hmm. You mean there's people speaking evil of one another in the church? Mm Mm-hmm. You mean stuff is going on in the church that shouldn't go on in the church? Mm Mm-hmm. Why does that happen? We find out in this passage that it is actually... And the easiest way to describe it, spiritual adultery. It's spiritual adultery. What do I mean? People often misunderstand this particular phrase. Spiritual adultery is not thinking about adulterous things in your mind. Spiritual adultery is being married to God 
being the bride of Christ and having another God as your lover. It's having another God. And very often that other God is a three-letter word beginning with Y. It's you. You're the reason that you're not being faithful to God. You've begun to worship yourself, your own thoughts. You've moved from worshiping the Lord and him alone to worshiping some other God. And very often that God is your own desires, that God is your own thinking, that God might be your own direction or way, your own will. And the problem with that is there's only room for one God. Jesus actually made that very clear. And in fact, as he spoke to the disciples, he said, man cannot love two gods. He said, you're going to love one or you're going to hate that one or you're going to love the other and hate. There's only room for one. You cannot love God and what Jesus said was mammon, money, possessions. There's only room on the throne of your heart for one God. And so anytime another God gets placed on your heart, you're going to have a problem with sin. Hence the reason that James uses this phraseology that seems rather odd to us when he calls out the church in Jerusalem as adulterers and adulteresses. He was not speaking of sexual sin. He was speaking spiritually, you guys are being unfaithful to the Lord. You've got another God. Every relational conflict you will ever ever have, every spiritual problem that exists in your life, everything that pops up can ultimately be traced back to you have substituted, whether momentarily or preemptively or preeminently, you have substituted for the real, the true, and the living God, your relationship with the Lord, for a moment you have stuck another God on the throne of your heart. And as I said, very often that is you. You want to please yourself. You might want to please the world, And occasionally, you may even want to please the devil as he's planted some thought in your head. That triunity of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world that we live in, the you that is unredeemed, and the devil who stimulates all those thoughts in your mind that are not of the Lord. And each time those things come up, that is an issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. You are choosing in that moment to either let Jesus be your Lord or you're allowing someone else temporarily to occupy that place. You see, a vast majority of Christendom wants Jesus as Savior, but they're really not all that concerned with Jesus being Lord. There's only room for one God on the throne of your heart, and it needs to be Jesus All day, every day. That's the picture. You see, the primary source of your sin is that spiritual adultery. 
whether it's resolving conflicts. You, you see, you can put band-aids on conflicts. And I want to be very careful here because sometimes talking to a counselor and you know, using some helpful hints on how to deal with things with regard to interpersonal relationships can be a good thing. But if you do not get to the source of the problem, and every good counselor will tell you this, we can put a Band-Aid on your relationship so you don't beat each other up today, but we're not fixing the problem unless we get to the root of it. Amen? That's true physically, that's true mentally, that's true emotionally, and it's very true spiritually. Band-Aids often overlook the problem. If you came in and, you know, I saw you, I have medical experience, I've been an EMT, and so if I saw you and you're squirting blood out of your carotid artery, if I pull out a Band-Aid and put it over that, oh, you may live, I may slow the flow of blood down sufficiently to where you're not going to bleed out, but it doesn't fix the hole in your neck. That's going to take some surgery. There's going to need to be some additional things done. And very much the same thing with not recognizing that we can from time to time put another God on the throne of our hearts. We're actually putting a band-aid on it. We'll say, well, I really don't worship that sinful behavior in my life. Or I really don't worship the world system. I'm really not worshiping money or I'm not worshiping power. I'm not worshiping passion or possessions. I'm really not worshiping that. The truth of the matter is actually you're just putting a band-aid on it because not recognizing the problem is not dealing with the problem. And the problem is that Jesus isn't completely Lord. He might be Lord 82% of the time, but he's not Lord 100% of the time. And consequently, sin problems pop up. Because the moment Jesus is not Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit is absent in you. And all of a sudden, those things creep in. You're like, oh, well, how did I end up with that thought process? And you look back on the situations that led up to it, and you're going to find that at some point in time, you opened the door by saying, I really don't want the Lordship of Jesus over this area of my life. I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to kind of let off on the gas on that part. And so the Lord, I believe, is speaking to us tonight as a church in a way that I believe will be very helpful. You see, James wasn't addressing sexual sin. He wasn't, you know, worrying about these people, whether they were, you know, engaged in some type of misdeed in their relationship with, between husband and wife. He's saying, look, you, you guys have a problem here. And it's a deep-seated problem. As a matter of fact, it could have been that one of the symptoms of it was actually adultery, but the real problem was their hearts were far from Jesus. They, they were wandering everywhere in their mind. And so in order to flee sin effectively, in order to deal with sin effectively, you, you have to get away from spiritual adultery. You have to stop entertaining a deep friendship with the world. I have met so many Christians, and they'll come and they'll confess that you know they're struggling in some area of sin. And I don't even need to name one. You can all think of 50 or 60 of them. But I, I could give you almost any example of some sinful behavior, and I can tell you that at some point in time, 
If you're engaged in that behavior, Jesus is not Lord in that area of your life. You have stopped allowing him to be the one who is the master of that area. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's bitterness or hatred. It could be some things that we kind of learn to live with in our lives, especially in marriage. If you want to resolve conflict, which is the issue here in this passage, then Jesus has to be Lord. We are married to Christ. Amen? He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. We're hitched, okay? You, you, You all are betrothed. And one day Jesus is going to come back for his bride, and in the meantime, he expects us to be faithful. And by faithful, he doesn't mean just sexually pure. He means not being wed to someone else while he's gone. Not jumping on board with some relationship with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you can see that, of course, in marital infidelity, in actual adultery. That is this very serious sin. But in a very similar way, friendship with the world is a very serious sin. It's an issue. It's a big deal. Because it will allow you to think in ways that you shouldn't think. It will allow you to be places you shouldn't be. It will cause you to engage in things you shouldn't engage in. And pretty soon you will have behaviors that don't belong in the life of a child of God. You can't be a friend of the world and be the friend of God at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. That may be momentary. It may be temporary. But during the time that you're engaged in friendship with the world, you're an enemy of God. The Bible is very clear on this. Now, because of God's grace, doesn't mean you're out of the kingdom, but it does mean you and God are not squared up at that moment. There's an issue between you and God, and it's produced an animosity because God is a jealous God, and rightly so. You you see, friendship with the world, when you seek to please yourself, when, when you're not following the Lord, then ultimately God's standing there going, aren't we married? Now let me put this into practice for you, for those of you that are married, and if you want to be married, this is going to be very useful to you. If you are married to someone, you are not an independent agent free to do whatever you want. I would not ever think of going to the bank and going, you know, I would really like a new car. I think I'm just going to buy one for myself. You know, my truck's six years old now. It's kind of like got a few dings on it. I mean, we live here in L.A. I've been to Home Depot a few times, got some scratch. I want a new one. How do you think my wife, my beautiful bride, Connie, would react if she came home and, Jeff, where did the money in our bank go? Well, (laughs) you obviously don't care about me, honey. You see, I would be acting independent of her, and she would immediately get jealous that I don't think of her. The same is true for the Lord. You are wed to the Lord as a believer, and he is a jealous husband over you. He wants you to consult him on everything, and you need to consider him in every single decision. You're not a free moral agent to do whatever you want to do. 
you must consider the impact that it has on your relationship with God. That's how we determine where the lordship of Jesus fits in our lives. It's like, if I wouldn't do that without talking to my bride, I certainly shouldn't do it without talking to God. Because that is actually a superior relationship. And so when you think about all the things that might get you into a hot water with your spouse or maybe with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, or maybe even your parents, if you wanted to take it to another relationship, would certainly apply. You know, you don't set your own rules when you're 12. I would think you would consider talking to your parents before you, you know, brought your boyfriend or your girlfriend home to stay the night at 12. Probably going to get you a beating. Not going to be good. In the same way, God is watching over our lives. He's saying, well, why didn't you talk to me about that? The reason you're having that problem in your life is I'm not Lord in that area. The reason that sin behavior keeps coming back is you won't let me have it. You keep doing your own thing. And so the source is really this intense desire that we have to please ourselves. And so four things. One, we're married to Jesus. We owe him allegiance. We can't just do our own thing. You can't do it in marriage. You certainly can't do it with the Lord. That when we break our vows in that sense, second point, just as it would be in your marital relationship, that's a serious effect that it's going to have on your relationship with the Lord. People often say, well, you know, I just don't feel close to God. And you go through the, where they're at in their life, and it's really easy to see why. Now, I don't know about you all, but sometimes I kind of need the holy two-by-four to hit me in the head for me to you know, actually get it sometimes. But I'm glad that God does that. And so how does he do that? By allowing things to deteriorate to such a state that we go, this isn't working. I need to change my behavior. It's not because God isn't sufficient. It's because I'm not listening. I have to be very careful. And can I just tell you that God's word, though, is always loving, is not always nice. There's a difference between those two words. It's always loving because it points to the love of God. So when God corrects, he corrects with the point being he loves you. But just like Jesus called the Pharisees broods of vipers, spawn of Satan, so God sometimes has to say things to us that we don't want to hear. And this passage is kind of one of those passages where it's just like, man, God's being serious here. This is the real deal. He's trying to prevent us from going places we shouldn't go, doing things we shouldn't do. There's a, there's a measure of boldness to this passage. But the beauty is this boldness is the love of God being poured out upon us. It's like, Lord, you love me. You don't want my life a wreck. You don't want me to be miserable. You don't want me to be in that behavioral problem that's going to wreck the, the existence of my life. But sometimes we just don't want to listen. I was 
16 years old, and the church that Connie and I met in, and we were eventually married in, um, I was pretty involved in the youth ministry there. And there was an opportunity to go to a Bill Bright basic youth concept thing that was at Forest Home, same place that Billy Graham had his life changed. And for someone who was working at the time, which I was, taking three days off that I normally worked and paying the $35 that the conference cost for the weekend, uh, seemed like a lot of money in our youth pastor at the time just looked me in the eye and he said, if you're really committed to Christ, what's the decision here? Just go. God will take care of it. He's got all kinds of money. And I, was, I remember just agonizing over that decision. I was like, I, I, I gave all the reasons why, well, you know, I'll miss work and blah, blah, blah. And finally, he convinced me to go. And sure enough, the conference was paid for by somebody. To this day, I don't know who paid for it. But my life's trajectory was altered in that moment of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My flesh said, go to work, get money. My spirit said, that's not what I need you to do right now, Jeff. It was a matter of lordship. And to this day, as nonlinear as my path has been in following Christ at times, I can look back on that moment and go, that was a lordship issue. That was me submitting. A third thing, friendship with the world and friendship with God are mutually exclusive. Look at verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? I love the NIV there. It's hostility. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. They're antithetical. It's the antithesis. It's the opposite. Mutually exclusive terms can't happen. Like the, the definition of understanding truth, two truths, if they compete with one, one another, cannot be both true. One has to be a lie, the other has to be truth. You can't have two competing truths that are both true. So you can't be a friend of God and at the same time a friend of the world. If you love God, you're going to be an enemy of the world. doesn't mean you're going to be obnoxious. doesn't mean you're going to be mean-spirited. It just simply means that the things of this world are not going to be your primary friendship. You're going to look at this world and go, no, the world just doesn't have anything for me. That's not, that's not where I want to hang my hat. And I think too much of the church tries to make nice with the world. And I just tell you, you can't make nice with the world. It doesn't mean that you can't be nice in the world, but you can't make nice with the world. Pastor Chet and I were talking back in the green room, and it's like we're talking about our experiences and how Things have shaped his life and things have shaped my life. And we, we happen to be talking about going to Europe and, you know, I visited Dachau, the concentration camp. And, and when, you, when I went there, it's just like, it's like, man, this heaviness. I couldn't imagine ever accepting what the Nazis did. 
And he was talking about being in Liberia and places he still goes to. And he remembers, I can't imagine ever putting myself willingly in that situation. And it's the same thing with friendship with the world. It should be so repulsive to us. It should cause our skin. We should be getting chicken skin. The hair should stand up on the back of your neck. The moment you start getting close to the world, something should go off in your spirit and you're like, man, get me out of here. What am I doing? This is not a place that believers belong. That is a lordship issue. That is a spiritual adultery issue. You have to flee that. Why do I say that? Because when we think of worldliness, it's not just places that are pretty easy to identify. It's not hard for most believers to go, nah, I really shouldn't hang out in Las Vegas. And again, forgive me if your parents live in Las Vegas or if you have friends that go there. or live. Or what, I'm not trying to make this evil, wicked case against everyone who's ever been to Las Vegas. But... Let's just suffice to say, that's pretty worldly. Most people, when they go there, it's like, mm, I don't want to see that. No, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, Christians need blinders like they put on racehorses to drive through Las Vegas on the way to Utah. But you know what's crazy? Oh, we'll sit down and have a conversation with someone that's filled with things that shouldn't come out of the mouth of a child of God. That's still friendship with the world. It's easy to pick on Las Vegas. That's not hard. It's pretty fleshly. It's pretty carnal. It's kind of out there. But what about that gossip and the slander, the innuendo, the tail-bearing, the deep-seated hatred towards somebody? You see, that's still friendship with the world. And that's still an affront to God. You see, well, well, I don't go to bars anymore. Praise the Lord. I haven't smoked dope in like three days. Hallelujah. I stopped shooting up. Glory to God. But are you still a liar? You have a tough time with the truth. You still think evil thoughts towards your neighbor. You see, that's all friendship with the world. Because that type of stuff draws no one near to the heart of God. It won't get you there, and it certainly won't help your neighbor. So the source is internal. Do you see what I'm saying? It's internal. It's that pressure. It's the magma of sin that's in that deep well that is the core of the earth that's molten. And it lies under the surface. And if you give it a crack, if there is a crevice in your life, if there's a slight weakening of the rock layers above that pool of sin that is in us because of who we are, if you take the pressure of being a friend of the world it will push that stuff right to the surface. And all of a sudden, there'll be a little eruption. 
may not be a massive volcanic eruption of some sin behavior, but it will be something that's going to cause destruction in your life. We have to flee that. We have to let God have those areas of our life. Let me be really clear here. The Bible is not against pleasure. The Bible is very pro-pleasure, but the right kind of pleasure. Things that are actually pleasurable according to God's standards. God loves the fact that we can enjoy things. He's actually given us all things richly to enjoy. His plans and purpose include this beautiful thing we call the stewardship of creation. We're supposed to enjoy this world. We're supposed to take care of it. It should provide joy for us. But we have to do that. We have to enjoy it in a way that is joyful because it pleases God. In that sense, the focus here, adultery... The reason that that's not enjoyable is it's outside of God's desire for the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. It, it, will, it will cause damage instead of beauty. And just because somebody else has something and you take it, you might now have it, but it's not going to be good because it's not in the context of how God wants you to enjoy things. He doesn't want you to take other people's stuff That's stealing. It's thievery. So it's not joyful. God can give you those things. The gold and silver in every mine, the sheep and the cattle on a thousand hills, the earth and the fullness of it are actually God's. He's easily able to give you everything that you will ever need. So the Bible's not against us having things or having pleasure or enjoying wonderful things. But the system that is on this earth is not designed to allow those things to happen in a way that are going to be beneficial to the child of God. So we have things that are attractive that are twisted and bent. God gave you a desire to be successful. But the world says, oh, you measure success by taking advantage of other people. The world says that that riches is you having way more than what you need. You see, God has a plan for all those things. We have to get on board with his plan. He's not against you being pleased with your life. But if you try and find these things apart from God, you will not find what you're looking for. It's that simple. Psalm 16 says... You will make known to me the path of life and in your presence a fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To walk with God is to have a measure of the things that God wants for us and it will be good. I have met people with nothing. I I was just conversing with a pastor friend in Nicaragua. I actually have mentioned Pastor Manfredo's story to you from the pulpit and I was thinking of him This is a man, when I first met him, um, he didn't have matching shoes. He didn't have matching shoes. We go drop 150 bucks on a new pair of kicks. He didn't have matching shoes. They were mismatched. And talking to him, he's talking about this joyful experience of pastoring this church 
to where the people would come. None of them had any money, and so they'd give him some bananas or a chicken. And then when he got done preaching at that church, he would walk five miles to another village to preach in that church. And then when he got done with that one, he would walk another five or six miles to another village to preach another church service. And he would get home at nine o'clock on Sunday, having taught three times. And by the way, walked about 20 miles. He died four days ago from COVID. And so I was emailing back and forth with his wife, who happens to share the same name as my wife, Connie, and ask if there was anything that we could do for them. And she said, you know, miraculously, the Lord took care of all of his hospital bills and his coffin and the memorial service and our bills. He's taking care of everything. We don't have any needs. You can't buy that kind of joy. It's not for sale. But it isn't the joy of having everything. It's the joy of having the one thing that matters. And that's Jesus in the proper place in your life. Amen? It's one of the reasons we have to be careful with where we garner our counsel. And again, this is absolutely not a slam on people who are engaged in psychology, especially not psychiatry, which is a medical degree. But as believers, we're to turn our eyes unto Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? And so if we're getting worldly counsel, if it's not pointing you back to who you are in Christ, if it doesn't direct you to Scripture, if it isn't inviting you to seek the counsel of the King of kings and Lord of lords, if you ultimately are being pointed back to you and away from him, even counsel can be a bad thing. So be careful what you fill your heart and your mind with. Things can be beneficial for a time, especially if you're dealing with something that's very severe, some kind of mental illness. But be careful, because for the child of God, we have to be pointed back to God. I need to know that the source of my strength is my Savior, that the root of who I am is found in Jesus. It will never be the things of this world. And so in that sense, you have to be aware of the danger of leaving God out in that sense of your counsel, of your thinking. Too often we turn to the world. We begin to be friends with the world, even in the way that we approach solutions to life's problems. You know, one of my questions that I often ask when people come and they, you know, they'll, they'll, the first thing that happens is they're so burdened with their problems, and rightly so, I might add, and they've begun to talk through all that stuff. And, and there's been 10 minutes of just spewing the problem. And I go, can we stop and pray? And it's like, oh, yeah. Why is that important? Because I don't have any answers. God does. 
Well, I might have some wisdom. I may have some life experience or something I can share from the past or things that other people have gone through or maybe I've gone through. I might be able to help you. But if the end, we haven't sought the counsel of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then we are committing spiritual adultery by making the solution one of our own. I want God's solution. I want him to be first. I don't want him to be the last one we talk to. I don't want him to be the one that we, well, we can't figure it out, God, so what do you think? We need to consider who he is in our counsel. I I want to be bearing down on the answers that Scripture would speak to us if they exist there. Look, let me be very, very candid with you. The Bible doesn't speak about every situation. It just simply doesn't. You know, you're not going to go and find the verse on what to do with technology, okay? It's not there. It's not going to tell you how you should respond when your children don't understand advanced mathematics. There's no verses for that. But there is a Holy Spirit that is in that Bible that does have the answer, that will speak to you. But you can't be going to the world for the solutions. You need to go to God for the solutions. You leave God out of the mix. You're effectively going home after spending all the money in your bank account and asking for your spouse to go, well, I just wasn't thinking of you. It's okay, right? Of course it's not. Amen? None of you would be okay with that. You should consult your spouse. And in the same way, you should consult the Lord Jesus on everything. Part of the thing that I think most Christians struggle with fairly consistently is that it's very hard in this world to to stop the, the pressure of how fast life moves long enough for us to go, oh, hey, I forgot to talk to God. I actually didn't ask him about this situation. I didn't even consider him. Oh, we saw, you know, some internet post, and that directed our attention. Some person that we know gave us some counsel, which was from the pit of hell. Again, your friends can give you godly counsel. I'm not denying that. But we need to be very, very, very careful that we're actually interjecting God in the front of the conversation so that everything is filtered through his lordship, his mastery over our lives. That prevents sin from bubbling to the surface. That's how that happens. People don't explain how the Holy Spirit can work in your life. You probably need some additional counsel. If they're not seeking the scriptures with you, you probably need some other counsel. If your walk with the Lord isn't being considered, you probably need some other counsel. And again, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Do not put on me some false thinking about people who are trying their very best to help. I'm simply saying don't leave God out of the mix. Don't leave God out of the mix. 
If you do, you're going to end up fostering a relationship that isn't going to be fruitful. And God hates that. God is jealous over his people. When we do that, it provokes God's jealousy. Verse 5 says this quite plainly. To me, this may be one of the most difficult verses here. But when you really look at what's being said here, God jealously desires for the Spirit really to work in us. That's his desire. He's actually a jealous God that way. And so when you think about the way this kind of plays out in our lives, in a godly marriage where both husband and wife are Christians, there is a good kind of jealousy. Amen? Think on that for a second. There's a good kind of jealousy. I would hope that there isn't a marriage in here, and it doesn't matter whether you use the husband or the wife as an example, but if either one of them were to be contacted by an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend, that you would go, well, that's okay. You know, there's room for both of us. I would hope that you as the spouse would be offended by that. That it would cause you to go, oh, no, you don't. You need to cancel your Facebook account. You just stop making contact. Lose this. If I catch you texting back and forth, there's going to be a problem. You should actually be jealous if you really love your spouse. Now, if you don't love your spouse, you're probably going to be okay with that. You're trying to get rid of them, right? So, yeah, go ahead and call them all you want. You know, you're, you're, you're okay. So you see, that's the right kind of jealousy, isn't it? If you love your spouse, you are not going to let somebody mess around with them. So you got to go through me. I catch you doing that, there's going to be a price to pay, and it's not going to be a good one. God's the same way. He is literally jealous over you. And he will not allow competing affections. He's not going to let you go your own way and do your own thing without confronting that. You're not going to be comfortable. It's not, you're not just going, oh, yeah, well, you know, I kind of have this other thing going on over here. No, God's going to come into that situation. And as a jealous God who loves you with an undying love, he's going to say, oh, no, that's not happening. we would all actually be offended if there wasn't a measure of jealousy if we found that happening in just a human relationship, right? Most of us would go, dude, what are you doing? What in the world's wrong with you? Don't you love your spouse? Don't you think God is even more jealous for you? For me? So when he sees those cracks opening up in your character... When he sees the text message from the devil, when that old flame posts on Facebook in your heart, when something's going on behind the scenes and it's actually got a little tiny bit of magma boiling up over there somewhere, the Lord's going, mm 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 mm. 
No, we're not leaving that in place. We're going to deal with that right now. And he's going to deal with it in righteousness. And so back to the actual context here, James is basically saying in these conflicts they were having in the church, the problem is Jesus wasn't Lord. And in that jealous love for his church, he allowed some things to happen so that those things were visible. You know, there's a reason you're at conflict with your spouse. There's a reason there's conflict with that person in the church. There's a reason you don't feel good about that situation. There is a reason for those things because the God who is jealous over you and loves you deeply is allowing those things to fester. It's allowing the pressure to boil up underneath the surface. He's letting things get that way so you'll go, there's something wrong. He's trying to help you deal with it. I love how this passage ends. It's very simple and yet unbelievably profound. Notice what it says. Do you not think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealously, but, circle it, but, Oh yeah, God is very jealous over you. And yes, he wants to be first place. He doesn't want any competing loves. He does not want spiritual jealousy to be in your life. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. It actually is greater grace or abundant grace. Or the inference is here in the original language, it's more grace than you will ever need for that situation. But God gives more grace. And therefore, the reasoning behind him giving that greater grace. God resists the proud. Plain statement. You don't need an interpretation of it. God is literally against when you were against him. If you are pridefully standing with your arms crossed, you know how your kids do to you? They're kind of like, I dare you. You know, you've, I don't know if your boys ever did that. You know, our boys kind of have that little two-year-old thing to where it's just like, you know, I don't have to listen to you. You know, I can drive myself, I'm only two. And they kind of cross their arms and stomp their feet and look at you. From God's perspective, every time we say no to him, that's kind of what we're doing. It's an inferior addressing a superior, and it will always be that way. But God gives greater grace, but don't make him resist your proud, arrogant spirit. Because he's going to win. Our boys never won. They didn't get the candy bar, they didn't get the toy. And I think all of you that have children can identify with exactly what I'm saying here. Your kids are like throwing a temper tantrum in the middle of Walmart and you're going, well, that's not going to get you anywhere. Right? The same is true with the Lord. You resisting him, arrogantly saying, I know better, he's going to resist you. And you don't have the power to resist God. So, do you want greater grace? 
That's the inference. You can have greater grace. Notice the default positioning here. Greater grace is available. It's the first thing said. But, therefore, God resists the proud. He's going to come against you. That's what he wants to do because he doesn't want you to trust you. But, gives grace to the humble, the bowed knee, the person that says, you know what, Lord, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'd be in a knucklehead. I had another God. I, I was unfaithful in that moment in my mind, in my actions. I was going the wrong direction. I know that's not what you want. I should have never gone there. When you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I agree with you, that should be a different way. There is infinite grace in that moment. Just great grace. Annie Johnson Flint, love that hymn. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of my sin. You see, God wants to give us great grace. But he gives us great grace when we stop resisting him. When we stop proudly crossing our arms and stomping our feet. That's when great grace is visible. It's always there. It's always available. But it becomes visible when we stop telling God no. Like, Lord, no, I'm not going to do that. When I agree with God, man, grace just pours out in my life. The freedom of forgiveness comes to my life. The sin is tamped down in my life. The junk that wants to bubble to the surface is pushed back where it belongs. And so, church, as you think on this passage this week, if you're in conflict, if you have an issue in your life, if there's something going on to where you've been living for self or there's worldliness or something's crept in to where Jesus is not Lord, know this, there is great grace waiting for the bowed, humbled knee. There's great grace. God is waiting for that. He's agonizing over that. He wants that. That is what he wants to have with you. He wants to have great grace. And all it takes is you agreeing with him. It's like, Lord, would you please intercede in this particular situation? Because I made friends with the world. And I'm renouncing that relationship. I'm turning from it. I'm going to resist. I'm going to flee that situation, which, by the way, we'll see in the next five verses that follow these. How, How to have victory in those areas. But that great grace is there for you. All you got to do is want it. Say yes to his lordship, and you'll have it. So let Christ to be that grace-filled peace that comes when you have conflict at any time. Just ask him to restore your soul, your mind, and he'll do it. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Amen. We'll have some pastors up front. Maybe you've got something going on. You need to pray for it. You need to get rid of it. You need to leave it with the Lord tonight before you go home.
Don't miss that opportunity. Just simply come up and grab one of the pastors and say, hey, I've got this going on. Can you pray for me? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for that great grace in my life. Lord, those areas to where, Lord, I created the crack that allowed the magma to come to the surface. And you were so gracious to pack it full of earth and stomp it down and jealously guard our relationship. And you reminded me of what needed to be done. Lord, I thank you for those times. I want to pray that if there's anyone that's struggling tonight with some area, It's difficult. It's been hard. Maybe it's something that uh, they didn't even really believe was an issue, but it's bubbled up from time to time. God, would you please send your great grace upon this place tonight and convince us of the value of you uh, being right there in the center of all the things that we think and all the things that we do. Lord, would you be the great bridegroom that jealously watches over us? So, God, we give you our lives afresh and anew and order areas of weakness and struggle that you would be kind and gentle with us. Help us, Lord. We cry out to you with bended knee and just say, God, we need you. So, Lord, bless us, touch us, anoint us. Lord, thanks for loving us. Thank you for that great grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.